Hey, happy March. I saw a flower in my front yard, so hey, it's actually happening. Needs to happen. Turns out the seasons need to change. Um, thing about how, uh, what am I thinking about? I was thinking about the term hipster that used to be a, a bit popular term. You hear it left and right, accusations of it. Like, I mean, I, I worked at a job with people who weren't hip in any sense of the word, like not even, not in, and, uh, not in any sense, not very current. And I felt like I was losing my mind. And I've said before, like the thing that makes me feel like I'm going crazy is when you have the same conversation over and over. Like, I think it's cool sometimes to revisit a topic or revisit the same conversation because new things come from, I mean, I do it on here. I, I say the same things over and over again. But in doing that, sometimes I realize that, oh, like, even though I'm telling the same story or I'm talking about the same thing I always talk about, in doing that, I actually get to a new point that I hadn't thought of before. So it's not that, like, saying the same thing or doing the same thing is pointless because that's sometimes how you actually kind of break through rather than just having a thought or having a conversation and saying, oh, I already did it. So, you know, there's two ways of thinking about repetition. I mean, it could go for, like, practicing music. Like, if you repeat the same riff over and over and over again as an exercise, the 99th time you play it, you might very well break through and come up with something really interesting or do something really interesting with it. It's kind of the same idea. Um, but but anyway, you know, at this job, I felt like I was losing my mind because the people that I shared an office with had a conversation one day where they're like, what is a hipster? And keep in mind, this is, you know, long after that term had been in use in the mainstream, in the public. And, uh, but they, they had this conversation like, what, what, what even is a hipster? And they, they all didn't even know what they were talking about. And I didn't say anything. It's the last conversation I need to have because it's not, it's not an interesting conversation at all. And then like a month later, one of the same people, probably the same person said, what even is a hipster? And they had the same exact conversation. And I was like, oh man, I, I feel crazy. I feel crazy. Like, what it reminds me of is I went on a date through OkCupid probably yeah, 11 years ago. Because I remember exactly what was going on in my life at the time. So it was 11 years ago. And it was like this beautiful girl. I think she was from Belarus, actually. She was from Eastern Europe. And it, it was weird, too, because, like, we never talked about it. This, this is just going all directions, but we never talked about it. But I had recently broken up with a longtime girlfriend, and she had bought this photograph from one of her classmates that was on our wall of our apartment for the entire time we were going out. And I realized that this was the girl who took that photo. So there was something weird going on there. It felt weird where, like, I'd recently broken up with this girlfriend. I was getting over it. And 
the first girl that I might, you know, might even have been like the first OkCupid date I had ever been on because I hadn't been on that site before. I'd never done online dating before. So it was just some weird form of synchronicity that the first OkCupid date I go on to kind of get past this breakup is with the girl who took the photo that was on the wall of our apartment. And I didn't know her, but I never mentioned it. But uh, we went on two dates and it never, it never went anywhere. But on the second date, we were sitting there and I, I realized at some point we were having the same exact conversation we had the first date, like literally the same. And I, and I think it was even my fault because like she had told me about some meal where she comes from. There's some food, there's some like item they make in her, her home country. And like, it's, it's kind of like a gyro. And it, it like keeps you fed throughout the entire day. Like you eat one and it, and you don't get hungry the rest of the day. Like there's something about the makeup of it. It's like it sustains you for the whole day. And so she was telling me about that. And I, and, and I think it was even, I think it was my fault that we were having the same conversation again. And I think at the same exact moment, we both realized we were having the same conversation and it unsettled us. But we just kind of pretended not to acknowledge it. And, of course, we didn't go on another date. So <laughs> is that the reason? No. But it was just one of those moments. But it was a similar kind of moment at this job where, like, they, like the same person was like, what, do you, what even is a hipster? And then every single, the, the exact same group of people. And I liked all these people. It's not like I didn't like them. But it, it made me feel insane because I was like, oh, shit. Like every single one of those people is, is saying the same thing they said a month ago as if they're saying it for the first time. It's a rerun. And they didn't get anywhere. Because it, it was not an example of what I was talking about where like repeating yourself causes you to like find a new idea or breakthrough. It was like literally they were as if they were on a script. They were having the same exact conversation they had had a month ago with no new insight. It's not like one of them had figured out, you know, what a hipster is and, you know, had some new knowledge to share. It was the same exact thing. But it's something you don't hear people talk about anymore. People don't debate what that is. People don't even think about it. It kind of became the norm. You know, kind of, that's just how normal people look. And I think it also coincides with the things that made somebody that or whatever people thought that was, have kind of disappeared. You know, like the... Because, the, I mean, and, and too, the, one of the reasons why I never liked talking about that was because it wasn't really my... Like, when, like, for example, when I was in, let's say, high school, a term that I heard people use a lot was scenester. And what it referred to was somebody who was involved or interested in some sort of niche music scene like it generally referred to people when i was in high school who were into like hardcore or indie rock and those two genres were kind of interconnected where i lived and uh, you know if somebody was into those things and they basically dressed the part and at that point it was like dyeing your hair black wearing a white belt for some reason, wearing tight black jeans, 
wearing small t-shirts. Just exactly what guys who were into that kind of music at the time looked like. If somebody just like wore that uniform and was into all of the things that person was into, if their social life revolved around going to shows, not that there's anything wrong with that, but it was a certain type of person. It's, it's very much a, like if you, you know it, if you see it sort of thing. And that applies to the whole hipster idea, which kind of grew out of that. I hate to talk this way about it, but it's true. And uh, it's, it's very much like you know it when you see it. You know, like, it's, you know, because one of the things people said, like when, when those coworkers were having this discussion over what's a hipster, what, what is a hipster anyway? Their scripted discussion, like one of the things one of them said was like, well, they're into records. They collect records. They're into vinyl. And it's funny because that doesn't make somebody that. You know, it reminds me of like many years ago when I had this group of friends here. You know, one of them referred to me as a record collector and I was like, nah. I mean, I know to you I seem like a record collector because I have records. Probably more than anybody else you know. But I know record collectors and I'm not a record collector. It's kind of the same idea. Where it's like being into that thing doesn't make you that thing. But, you know, in high school, like, it was this scenester idea. And then, like, a generation after me, maybe it's probably my generation, but, like, a, people a few years younger got into this thing that wasn't the dyed black hair, that wasn't the white belt. It was, like, people, it was almost like glam, where they started to have really big hair. And they were less into, like, underground and niche stuff. It was around the time that, like, metalcore became mainstream. It was around the time that all that stuff became just a part of the mainstream, like it was on MTV or something. And they started to refer to them as, as scene kids, but that was all very foreign. It was MySpace. It was kind of the first generation of like kids taking selfies with their phones. But it was very different from the thing that I had experienced in high school. Like, you could see where it grew out of that. But I didn't really pay close attention to it because there was nothing even remotely interesting about it. It was just like this early incarnation of like the internet meets the dying fumes of music scenes combined with this sort of uh, throwback glam sort of vibe. And then, and that's around the time too though that this term like this idea of the hipster came about. But it was something that normal people could identify and recognize. And that's always a red flag. Not that there's anything wrong with normal people, but when something, when, when normal people can identify a trend, you know, usually it's a sign that they're not like observing something. Uh, it, it's really not even a niche. And it, what, what also coincides with this is like when being a nerd became normal. Like more and more people were online, more and more people were into these nerdy subjects that like you might have gotten bullied for for being into a generation earlier. Were just They were now what people are into. And it was, it was like this nerd pride thing. But the people who were saying that shit 
like the sort of people who, who had this nerd pride weren't even nerds. They were just normal people because nerdy stuff became completely mainstream. I mean, it's like that story I told about going to my bank and talking to the banker who's probably a couple years younger than me. And I was like, how's it going, man? He's kind of a bro. I don't normally use that term, but, you know, it's another one of those things that you know it when you see it. And my banker was absolutely a bro. And he's like, oh, I'm doing good. I was up late. He's like, I'm starting a podcast. He just volunteered that. Like, I'm starting a podcast. And I was like, oh, oh yeah? And he's like, yeah, it's going to be about Star Wars. <laughs> and this is a couple years ago, a year or two ago. And I was like, oh, wow. I, I certainly didn't say, oh, I have a podcast too. What's it about me? It's about you, actually. It's about me and you. I'm going to talk about you and your Star Wars podcast. But that was just, you know, it, you know, the fact that like your banker, who's a total, you know, millennial bro type guy, you meet with him to talk about like your mom's estate when she dies, and he's like, oh yeah, I'm starting a podcast, by the way. What's it about Star Wars? It's about Star Wars. Star Wars. Star War. I think I've mentioned before, but like there was this girl who was kind of a, not even an acquaintance, kind of a friend of a friend. And she was talking about how she was in an alleyway once and this homeless guy came up to her and he, he, he looked at her really intently and he just said, Star War. Star War. Just one. Not plural. Just one Star War. That's what I should have said to the banker. Star War? I love Star War. Star War. But uh, anyway, this is going all over the place. But uh, yeah, you don't see the hipster discussion come up anymore because that just became normal. It's like around the time, I mean, I was talking to Miles about this when the Panzer Division Kyle Rittenhaus was uh, going on where like the prosecutor had black frame glasses, a faux hawk, black frame glasses, a faux hawk, and a Millennium Falcon lapel pin. But he was older than I was. You know, he was just some frickin' prosecutor. But that's case in point. Like, that's everything I'm talking about distilled into one person. Like, he has a faux hawk, black frame glasses, and a Star Wars lapel pin. But he's a prosecutor. He's a, he's a, you know, he's my banker starting a Star Wars podcast. But I was talking to Miles about it because I was like, all those things would have made that guy on the cutting edge in like 2004, 2003 maybe. Because at that time, like, people who had glasses weren't wearing black frame glasses unless they were hip. Unless they were kind of on the cutting edge of something. You didn't wear thick frame, black frame glasses. You didn't have a faux hawk. Being into Star Wars was, you know, not some super niche interest or anything, but it was considered a little bit nerdy. Like being an adult man with a Star Wars lapel pin in 2003 wasn't normal. But today, that's just a normal guy prosecuting a kid who shot people. A faux hawk, black frame glasses, and a Star Wars lapel pin. That's everything I'm talking about in one. And that's the reason why people don't even talk about it anymore. Like, I work with a girl 
and she was super, super nerdy. Like, she was legitimately nerdy. Like, she'd read every fantasy book. She uh, played D&D. She played every video game. She was into... She was a female brony. Like, she was... She checked off all the boxes. I really liked her. She was awesome. Because she was a legitimate nerd. Like, she was socially awkward. Very matter-of-fact. Like, she had that sort of clinical way of talking. Where it was, like, kind of humorless. I don't want to say she was humorless. But when you talked to her, it was kind of this humorless tone. Very flat. And at one point, I remember, like, she said to us, she was like, I'm, I'm, you know, I really like working here because, you know, I'm a nerd and you guys are really accepting of that. And I was like, I'm glad she feels that way because I'm a fan of her. Like, she was my secret Santa for a work party. And she bought me, like, this little camo bag that's really high quality. And she bought me this knife that had a carrying case. Like, for a coworker, that's pretty fucking cool. For anybody, that's pretty fucking cool. Because I still use that camo carrying case all the time. I've gotten so much use out of it. And it included, the camo carrying case included, like, this little, I don't even know what the tool is called, but it had this tool with its own little compartment for breaking out car windows. So the idea is that, like, if you lock your keys out of the car, you can break your own window. And so, like, a burglar tool, basically. Like, so she bought me this little camouflage bag with, like, a, and a cool camo, too. Not shitty new camo. It was, like, a good camo print, high quality. With a, it came with a tool for busting out car windows. And she bought me a knife that had its own cool little... Uh, woven carrying case, so I mean, pretty fucking cool. But I remember, like, when she when she was like, "I'm so glad you guys are so accepting of me being a nerd." I was like, "You know, you are a legitimate nerd, not in a and not in a pejorative way. Like, she legitimately was a nerd, and and down for the cause of what that is." But it was weird because I remember, th- I, like, I thought about it at the time because I was like, "It's weird though because it's like being just like a a general nerd." is so normal now. Like, it didn't even cross my mind that a nerdy person would work in an office and worry about being judged or anything because basically the average person is nerdy. Like, so much nerdier than they ever would have been in the past. And, uh... I think that's true for, like, like being into hip things, too. Because I mentioned this before, where, like, it doesn't take much to get into something now. You know, even though not everything is available online, it's so easy. Like, I met a young person, like, ten years younger than me a few years ago. And she was into some very niche stuff. Like, her interests were very, very niche. Like, she was into underground music... And she knew everything. And this, this isn't just her. There's another guy I know, too, who's the same age. And both of them are cool people who have a genuine passion for these interests. And they're interests that, that would have been incredibly difficult to get into or to even acquire knowledge of 15 or 20 years ago. And... Uh, but now it's it, the, there's so much information available. Like I've mentioned this before, how like 
even though I'm the product, I'm kind of like the product of like two worlds where, like when I got into underground music, for example, the internet made that a lot more accessible. Like I could order CDs and, and albums and things that I wouldn't be able to find in local stores. And I was able to get information on things. But there, but like Discogs didn't exist. And you would have fan sites that had like a band's entire discography down to like super limited exclusive releases. But that wasn't something that was just there everywhere. There wasn't a website where you could go where you could go in and see an entire band's discography. And so you had these sort of fan sites that were dedicated to that. And so you didn't even know every single you couldn't even find information on every single release a band might have made. And yeah, you know, some file sharing was becoming available and things like that, but it wasn't like you would necessarily find everything you were looking for on there. But then when I met these younger people, a guy and a girl, totally not connected in any way, but both very into like niche art and music, I was amazed at like how much knowledge they had, like data. Like they knew who had been in, in this project and this band, like they knew all about it and they had heard it too because they could get into something and go to YouTube and somebody had ripped all of that band's albums, even the very obscure ones. And just over the course of an evening, you could listen to an entire discography. But I did notice it's like they hadn't really taken it in, it seemed like. Like even though they were into it, and I'm not questioning their passion or anything, it was just different. Like it was all there for them in an evening. And somebody could say that about me. Like they could say, oh, well, you, you came of age in the early 2000s and a lot more was readily available to you. 100% true, but it shows you that things just become more readily available. And that changes things. You know, I'm not even going to say it cheapens it, but it, uh, it changes things. And so, like, being someone who's into weird stuff, or stuff that's, you know, not just readily available on the surface, it has less meaning now. And being into something, you know, being able to just devour it in an evening is, uh, is going to give, it's going to make that less a part of your identity. Like, the less you have to hunt for it, the less that's going to really be part of your identity. But it's also going to impact like people who just want to take on the superficial aspects of that. Because that's kind of what people are getting at with hipsters is they're like, oh yeah, you know, a hipster is someone who just kind of takes on the most superficial elements of these niche interests to signal to people. But I think you see less of that because there's not really anything to even emulate. Like there's not even, like the sort of person that those people would be emulating doesn't even really exist. If they do, it's just because they've kind of stayed into it for a long time. But it requires, like being a hipster, and I hate, I wish I had another word for it, but being a hipster was something that basically required having something to emulate. And what do you emulate now? What do you even emulate? 
And like with the whole digital music thing, even though everything's available, it's also interesting that we live in this time where it's so easy to take that all away. Because you can devour everything in an evening, it's just there, waiting for you. It's interesting that that also goes hand in hand with somebody being able to take it all, all away with the click of a button. Like the same thing that makes it so accessible is the same thing that makes it unavailable at the click of a button. Like, yeah, Discogs is there. You can go through discographies and find most of those albums available for sale. Like, someone's selling all those. Doesn't matter how old it is, how obscure it is. You can find a lot of things on there, limited things. But then, like I've experienced, you go to sell something or buy something, and it just says, this has been blocked. We find this content questionable. And some of it's kind of expected. Some of it's really surprising. Like, I've certainly, as I've mentioned, like, I've come across things that I'm trying to sell, and I'm just like, oh, this will, people will want this. I don't want it anymore. And I go to sell it, and it says, this, this is artist, or this release has been blocked from Discogs. You can't sell, trade, you can't trade in this product. And I go, huh, they really went out on a limb here. So, like, with the click of a button, even though so much is available through a site like Discogs, it's amazing that they can just stop that. They can just say, nope. And all it takes is a couple websites to do that. Like, you can still sell some things on eBay, but people have to be looking for it and wanting to find it. But, you know, eBay's done things like that. eBay's blocked certain artists. eBay's blocked certain things. So all it takes is, you know, eBay and Discogs blocking a band or an artist, and all of a sudden, like, the only place that you could find that product is somebody who just posts a text list. It's like we're back to the, the 90s and the early internet where you would just post a text list. And we know that PayPal, we know that merchant services will also block entire companies if they think they're selling things that are inappropriate. And at that point, what's going on? You have e-commerce is shut down. The platform for making a financial transaction is unavailable to you. So you're back to what? Sending money orders in the mail. Hiding cash in an envelope. Text lists. It's kind of funny how it's like a return to the Stone Age in that way. But that click of a button thing is so interesting to me because we see it happening. Even though it's all so readily available and so much is there, somebody can have that level of control. They can tighten the parameters of what you're exposed to. And it plays into that thing I said about... It was an interview with... Uh, I always forget his name. I guess Bonnie Prince Billy, who I've never listened to. I had some friends who were into that guy in high school. Smart guy, I know that, because I've, I've I heard an interview with him on a podcast that I listened to. And I, I was open-minded, because I was like, you know, I'm not a fan uh, in any way, but I don't know anything about him, and he's been around a long time. 
I'm sure he's a smart guy and he has some interesting observations. And sure enough, he did. That's why you stay open-minded. It's like, even though I'm not a fan of this music, that's not a that's not a requirement to get something interesting out of a person. But I think it was him. He made a comment about how he talked to a young person. And he was like, oh, so what kind of music are you into? And they said, like, I listen to the Black Heart Procession and everything that comes after. And he did, He thought, like, you know, he was confused. He was like, in everything that comes after. And then he realized they were talking about, like, a Spotify playlist where you click on an artist, you look up an artist, and then it just automatically cues up a random selection of artists that fans of that artist listen to. So this person, whatever Black Heart Procession is, I don't even know, but... You know, you listen to them, and then it it, re- it recommends something similar. It's sort of like a, the YouTube algorithm of recommended videos, except I guess on Spotify, which I've never listened to for music, they just queue up similar stuff. And so, on, on one hand, they have the whole world at their fingertips, but on the other hand, you have this—you know—you're at the mercy of someone's vindictiveness or their views where the same people who make all that stuff so accessible are the same people who can decide... I mean, they can basically be the DJ. Even though you think you're the DJ and every music that's ever existed is at your fingertips, you're not actually the DJ. You've been tricked into thinking you're the DJ, but in reality, it's some nerd. It's some some guy at a tech company. It's, you know, the the people who run Spotify, the people who run YouTube. Yeah, they give you almost everything, but they're the DJ who actually controls how much of that you can consume. And if they decide to take something off of there, well, it's gone. That's not a hard copy. So that's a very interesting thing that's developed is it's like, it's made so much available But when they decide to make something unavailable, it becomes even harder to find than it was originally before all this stuff existed. And I want to get into another thought that I had recently where, you know, if you were to ask me today, like, because I think, like, one of the reasons why you don't see people identifying or even, like, trying to emulate these these more established like niche identities like what i was saying about like what a hipster was was like somebody who was trying to emulate what it was to be genuinely into music that was you know niche music niche movies to basically have a strong like like what a hipster was was like trying to here i'm i'm my coworkers 5 years ago but like what it was is it's like it's someone who was basically trying to emulate somebody who had a strong aesthetic preference that you won't find everywhere. Someone who had taste in things that you won't find everywhere. And they were very specific about those things. And it's taking the superficial aspects of that and making that your identity. And forming a social group around that. But uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that this hyper-politicization has risen up in the absence of that. Like, just like there aren't people who are really trying to be hipsters, there are people who are doing that 
politically. People have taken on these much harder political identities, these social and political identities. Where I mentioned that about like some of the, the gender trends that are going on with teenagers. Where, I'm not going to say all of it, but some of it, I'm certain, is the absence of these earlier identities to take on. Like, it doesn't mean anything today to become a goth kid. Like, being a goth doesn't mean anything today. Getting into music doesn't mean anything today. These identities that you would choose when, when I was growing up, and if you were me, you, ch you chose them reluctantly, but these sort of superficial identities that teenagers would take on, these phases they would go through, they were kind of informed by, like, what are your interests? And your interests, like, no matter how narcissistic teenagers have always been, their interest wasn't really themselves. Because the whole, the reason teenagers go through these, phase, these phases and take on so many identities is because they don't actually feel comfortable inside of themselves and they don't want to just be themselves. They don't even know what that is. And so they, they see what, they see other people that they think are cool and they're like, I'm going to be like that. But they're going to be kind of a parody of it. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, even though it sounds really, you know, mean-spirited when you talk about these things, there's nothing actually wrong with it because it's just kind of what we do. And hopefully you don't dwell in that place forever. And that's what you see. Like, I'll see some kids that I knew. You know, I don't look at social media anymore. But over the years, like, especially that transition from, like, your mid-20s to your mid-30s, it was interesting to see the people who were kind of, like, trying to take on a more niche identity in high school and in their early 20s. And just to see them abruptly drop it and just become completely normal. And that's a good thing. It's not that they were a poser before. It's just they, they kind of realized like, oh, you know, like, I really do just want to have a career and family. Although it's not just that. It's even people who don't have a career or a family. A lot of them realize, you know, like, it, it took a lot of work. This is me reading into their minds. But I think some of them realize, like, you know, it actually took me a lot of work to try to like keep that identity up. And now I'm in my 30s and it really doesn't freaking matter and nobody's nobody gives a shit. Some people stay with it forever. Some people keep doing that forever, but I, I've noticed a lot of people I'm like, "Oh yeah, that person they used to be going for something." Like they used to be trying in their own small way to kind of carve out this like unique niche for themselves. And now you look at them and like, "Oh, yeah, they they gave up trying to do that." And that's probably to their benefit. And I've probably done that too in my own way. I mean, I've, I've changed for certain. I'm not who I was 10 years ago entirely. But, uh, you know, so there's this need to, to like kind of take on these identities. And I do see some of these trends that are going on that are more social and political in nature. It's like something had to take the place of those previous things. And because it doesn't mean as much, because there's nothing really to emulate anymore, and we've already created these like Frankenstein monsters 
from the past, because that's something that teenagers used to be able to do, is they used to be able to take like elements of decades past and be like, oh, I'm going to bring this back. Like in the mid-90s, I remember my sister's age range, you know, the younger Gen Xers, Gen Xers, started to wear these bell-bottoms again. Not crazy huge bell-bottoms, but there was this kind of like this new 60s sort of vibe going on. And you see, you see that just go on, but then it's like you can only do that so many times. And there reaches a point where there's no longer anything to emulate. And all of this also coincides with like not much happening creatively. Not that people aren't creative or aren't doing anything creatively, but it's like you don't see music scenes just like come out of the, the ether and have the impact they did. They seem to just be these Frankenstein hybrids of things that were already cool. You don't have underground music that's coming out that's making people say, well, this is totally different. You know, so much has been explored, and we've been given access to so many of the things that people have done. Like the idea of getting online and being able to devour an entire thing in a day. So like, even if you missed out on something or you were too young when something was new and relevant, you can devour it in a night. You can read everything there is to know about it. You can listen to every record. You can find every movie with few exceptions. And so there's just not, there's nothing really to emulate. And the things that you might want to emulate, you know, you can do it in a day and move on because people are hungry for new things. It's created this, uh, this hunger, like things don't sustain people for as long. Thinking about the Belarusian girl, Belarusian, um, telling me about the, whatever the sandwich was that sustains you for a whole day. It satiates your hunger for an entire day. You know, it used to be that your interest kind of could sustain you for longer. And it took work to continue to explore them. But now it's like you can just take that on and it, it is what it is. And what's replaced that are these social identities, people dissecting and deconstructing the idea of identity itself. Like most people who were taking on teenage identities 20 or 30 years ago never would have even questioned whether they're a boy or a girl while they're doing it. Yeah, they might be gay or they, they might be the very small percentage of people who experiences a disconnect between their gender. But that's going to be the minority. And most people who are trying to find these different identities as teenagers don't have those issues. They don't have that dissonance. And that's important because it tells you that teenagers don't have a strong sense of identity, period. Even if they know for sure that they're a boy and they're straight, they really don't have confusion over that, but yet they still have a need to take on new identities. And I think that's informed teenagers who otherwise would have felt secure in who they were on a basic human level, like what they, how they were born. I think that's led to them deconstructing those things 
in order to find like these new emerging identities because they can't find them elsewhere. That doesn't mean it's all of them. But what we're seeing, you know, like the sheer number of teenagers now who are identifying as LGBT. This, the, the, zoom, the percentage of Zoomers who identify that way. You know, I mentioned a couple months ago the millionaire Minecraft player and how they did a poll of his audience. And I think it was something like 40% identify as LGBT. And based on what we're learning, very few of those probably identify as gay or lesbian. They would identify in these gray areas. And that defies statistical probability. You know, even if there was something about this guy, this Minecraft player, that attracted a very specific audience, that number is so high, and it's not the only place we're seeing it. You know, we're also seeing it all over the place. They've been doing a lot of polling, they've been doing a lot of studies, and they're finding that the number of young people who identify in these new ways is just through the roof. And I don't say that to be mean-spirited or dismissive, because what it tells me is that people are trying to emulate something. They're trying to identify in a way that makes them unique, because they don't feel a strong sense of identity. And it coincides with them living in digital worlds more and more, communicating digitally more and more. They don't do as much in the flesh that reaffirms who they are as the person that is walking the earth right now. So they, they spend a lot of time online and on phones where you're given a lot more flexibility as far as who you can be to begin with and how to express yourself to begin with. And they're not grounded by other things. They're not going to a, a concert at a teen center that a friend invited them to and seeing something they've never seen before, a style of music they've never seen before, and looking around and seeing what the people look like and thinking, this is something new that I've never seen before. And I think I'm going to start doing this. Because that's how a lot of that stuff happened. Like when I was in ninth grade, you know, you and a group of people would go to like some show at a teen center and somebody would drag along some random friend. And that person, you know, over the next few months, you would kind of see a transformation. You would see them slowly start wearing certain clothes. You would see them getting into certain interests. Not that they were just uh, following everybody else, but it's just, you could see that like their mind got open to something. Where is that happening now in the flesh? You know, where is that going on? Where are young people experiencing anything like that? Because that's not the only example, that's just one of how things were. And uh, that could be being on the football team, too. Like, you're interested in football, and you, you play football for a couple years, and you look at, like, the people who are secure in that identity, 
Like you look at the players who are secure in their identity as a football player or a jock, and you're like, well, I'm going to listen to the music they're listening to. I'm going to dress the way they dress. I saw that happen all the time when I was playing football. Where like, even though that was a more acceptable mainstream identity, that happened. Like, you know, for whatever reason, you know, when I played football, you know, all of the, the football players listened to rap. And so as a result, someone who's a little weaker in their identity sees like what the confident, you know, fully immersed football players are doing. And they're like, well, I'm going to listen to rap too. Like, this is a crowd for me to fit into. They look around and they see what the confident people are doing. And that's where a lot of this comes from. Like, someone who doesn't feel confident, they look and they see what the confident people are doing. And they think, like, that will give me confidence. Or that person's confidence in who they are makes me want to be like them. And what was very telling to me about that Minecraft player was that when I was reading about it, and I read it on here because it was so crazy to, re to read out loud, what was so interesting about that Minecraft player is that there's like a, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, like a, like a catchphrase that his fans have to the point where like, even if it's not all of his fans, just the fact that it's enough that people have documented this, a bunch of his fans have this catchphrase that's like, reveal the gender. And it's because he's, he's obviously a boy and, but like, and he wears a mask and stuff, but he hasn't like declared his pronouns or his gender identity. And so this huge percentage of his fans, 40% who are into that stuff, this is how it was explained. This isn't my own interpretation. This is how that catchphrase was explained. Like the idea is that this certain group of his fans have this catchphrase that's like reveal the gender and it was explained as they want him to do that so that they can identify the same way he does like they want him to de to declare what he is so that these fans can call themselves that like if he calls himself you know gender fluid this, these fans who are asking him for, to reveal that, they've said they want to know that so that they can identify as gender fluid, which tells me a lot. It tells you that it's, there's such a social influence. And that plays into the confidence thing, because like what they're seeing is he's very confident. He's developed this Minecraft persona that people are really attracted to. And that's what these kids are into, Minecraft. And so there's a guy who's really good at Minecraft and has created this captivating persona that has made him a millionaire. So he's confident. And they want to know how he identifies because they want to identify with that. So there's this attraction to confidence in all that. But it's so political. I mean, it would otherwise be a. It would otherwise. I think it would otherwise be easier to understand. But what makes all this stuff weird is it's like these have become political identities, and with these political identities, people have become very angry. They've developed complexes around that, and the purity tests have always existed. 
you know, in the same way that political beliefs and social beliefs have this purity test where people are constantly looking for that time that somebody, even their friends, often their friends or their allies, they're looking for that time that that person said something that was politically incorrect so they can hold it against them and say, you're not what you say you are. You're a poser. And that's what people used to do with all of these niche identities. It wasn't like people were just widely accepting. Somebody who just got into something yesterday would look at a person who just got into it today and say, you're a poser. I knew about that thing before you. I knew about that before you. You're not as pure as I am. And now that's kind of entered this political realm where people are constantly doing these purity tests on each other. They found a new way to call each other posers. But instead of just being a little bit socially ostracized, the impact is that it's like people are trying to ruin each other's reputations and lives. If you don't pass the purity test, people will be at your throat and call you evil. When somebody was a poser or when, when you felt like somebody was not true to their identity 30 years ago, especially among young people, when someone called that person a poser, they didn't equate that with evil. It was just like, oh, that's embarrassing. That person's not cool. But it was not evil to be a poser. Nobody ever thought of a poser as evil. <laughs> Today, though, like if you if you fail the political or social purity test, you're evil. You are reprehensible down to your core level. And that's what happens when things get politicized. And so it's not a good thing. It's not just a new development that all of these things, all of these identities are so politicized. Because when things become politicized, they become severe. And uh, what's funny about that too, though, is there's always been a kind of a political element to this stuff. Like if you were to ask me today, like, what's a hipster? What is a hipster? I would say a liberal. I would. Not that that mentality doesn't exist elsewhere, but it's a very liberal viewpoint. And it's not a coincidence that most of what people would call hipsters 10 years ago, 15 years ago, would have been politically progressive. That might not have been the whole of their identity, but that's basically what they've become today. Like today, when you see a certain type of person that looks a certain way, you can immediately know where they stand politically. Not everybody, not that every single person can be divided that way, but certain types of people. It's why when you, I mean, for example, today I went into Target tonight and there was a girl and she, she might not identify that way, but it was, I saw what I would call a girl and she had the side of her head shaved, like one side of her head was shaved and her hair was kind of grown out, like chin length maybe, and then swooped over to the side, to the opposite side, and dyed like a, like a pink and purple color, 
she had glasses. And when I look at that person, with few exceptions, I know exactly what they believe. And I don't, not in the sense that I'm stereotyping them or limiting them. I just know what to expect. Like, I know how that person probably feels about most issues. And I made that joke to myself a couple years ago. It was during lockdown when I was just going out for walks and everything and you didn't see very many people, even out and about. And I remember I saw a girl walking, I think at the school or somewhere, and she didn't look like that. But I remember looking at her and I, I just joked to myself, I was like, bet she voted for Trump. Of course she didn't. I mean, the whole joke was that like, it would blow my mind if that girl voted for Donald Trump. It's, it's so exceptional. And so looking that way, like you know what that person believes. And even though things like, you know, the sort of like textbook, like mainstream hipster attire, like black frame glasses, tight pants, sweaters, certain types of jackets. Like even though, you know, just random old Republican guys look like that now because it's become normal. When you see somebody who looks like that now, you can still often assume what they're going to believe. Not that you should go around assuming, but you can kind of anticipate it. Like that look is political. Just like that girl in Target tonight who had pink and purple hair, one side of her head shaved with the hair like swooped over. Like I, I, I would bet money that without even talking to her, I could probably guess her stance on every single issue. I wouldn't do that to somebody because I don't believe in stereotyping them. I don't believe in putting people in a box. One of the things that keeps me alive is that I actively make it a point to not assume those things about people. But I also know that with a high amount of probability, I could do that. And I would probably be right. I could go down a whole list of issues that are completely different from one another. They've been bundled together politically because we do, our beliefs have, be, have become these political bundles that don't always make sense. But I could probably guess what her stance is on abortion, gun control, Donald Trump, Russia and Ukraine. You know, I, I mean, I even just, I said a minute ago, I was like, I saw it was a girl. I'm not saying that because I don't accept her right to identify however she wants. But the fact that I even had to give it any kind of qualification at all, the fact that I even had to say, I walked in and I saw a girl. Normally, I wouldn't even think twice. But because of the way that she adorned herself... I have to think about that and say, well, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if she doesn't identify as a girl or has some sort of fluid identity. It wouldn't surprise me based on the way she presented herself. And this is, you know, everybody knows this. It's a big, it's a huge joke, like the idea of like people with short colored hair. It's a big joke. It's become the uniform of a certain way of thinking and everybody knows it. 
Even your grandpa knows it. But it doesn't make it any less true that it's become that obvious, which makes it more strange that people are, are still trying to be unique that way. Like, I had a girlfriend who, she didn't look like that, but she, you know, she was kind of in that ballpark. Like, she would dye her hair different colors. And at that time, nobody was really doing that. It's not like nobody had ever dyed their hair. But, like, now I can go to the grocery store, and there's a decent chance that multiple people there will have dyed hair. I'll even see older women and stuff like that. And more often than not, you can assume something about what that person believes based on that. It's kind of crazy how that works. Where like even a woman who's 50 years old, and I see them. Maybe it's where I live, but I see them. But even a woman who's 50 years old and has pink or purple hair, when I go to the grocery store, I can probably predict what her stance is on any number of issues. It's pretty wild that that's where we're at. But you can't do that with just somebody who looks, you know, normal in, in the traditional mainstream sense. Like a guy who's wearing a t-shirt and jeans and a ball cap. When you meet him, you really don't know if he's, you know, a hardcore Trump mega supporter. You don't know if he voted for Biden. You don't know if he's like a textbook neoliberal Democrat. You don't know. There are certain people that you can... I mean, there are, uh, of course, right-wing versions of that. Like if you see somebody wearing... Um, like hunting clothes. Like, like, not just hunting clothes, but like brands... You know, you can sometimes deduce kind of where, where their stance is, but it's not always, you can't always be sure. Like where I live, there's a lot of people who are outdoorsy, they hunt, they fish. A friend of mine was just helping her neighbor move out. And like, he's paying her to clean the house and stuff. And he's like a super hunter. It's a big part of his identity. He's older than I am and he's, he's just a super hunter. Like I went over there. I didn't meet him. He's gone, but I went over to his house. I saw like some of the items he left behind. And you could tell that like hunting and fishing and like the outdoorsman identity is a big part of his identity. And my friend who hates Donald Trump like mentioned like, oh yeah, it came out that he he's a Trumpsfeld supporter. And she didn't judge him for it, but she just she didn't like it either. And it didn't shock me from seeing like what was in his house. But you'll find the opposite all over the place here, where most of the outdoor sort of people I know around here, including relatives of mine, some of my relatives and people like that, their group of friends, like thinking about my sister's friends who are, I mean, they have professions and hobbies that are pretty much the same as that guy, but they're super liberal. And you can't predict it based on that. But what is it about wearing certain clothes, dyeing your hair a certain color, wearing certain glasses? I mean, there's even a physicality to it that's so interesting. There's certain people where it's like, just, this is me going out there, but I 100% I believe this. There are certain people where like, I can tell what their beliefs are just by their facial structure, just by the way they look, sometimes even just by their posture. 
or not not well yeah their posture but also their their build like i can i can tell you kind of what someone believes like if a guy has narrow shoulders and is kind of skinny and walks like with his stomach out not that he's fat but like if a guy kind of like this is me getting really weird but you know it's just it is fucking weird <laughs> like if a guy has narrow shoulders and is has a, th- a very thin build and kind of walks with his stomach out front it probably sounds more cartoony than i mean it it's very subtle but it's like you you can almost bet that that guy is probably an unhinged liberal <laughs> so it, it even gets down to the physicality of people and it's not that you can predict what everybody believes or anything like that. It's just that certain type of people stand out and you start to notice a pattern. But to get back to the hipster thing, I don't think it's a coincidence that hipsters are typically liberals. Yeah, you had people who would be called that who weren't. You know, the so-called alt-right movement was a kind of a form of, you know, it, it was sort of a variation of that on the right. You know, because it was coming from a place of counterculture, it was it was kind of the right wing's version of that, but it's exceptional. And their politics would have reflected that years ago. Like if you met somebody with a faux hawk and black frame glasses in 2003, they probably would have been politically progressive or liberal. Just interesting. And uh, when I think of like what is a hipster today, I, I would say it's just somebody who is a who's emulating what they think it is to be a morally pure person. It's somebody who wants to come across morally and politically on the, the right side of history. Because they're not the pure version of that thing they're trying to emulate. A lot of these people deep down are kind of question it. I know that because I'll talk to people on occasion who will say things like, oh, you know, I could never say that out loud to my friends. And I know the feeling. But I've reached a point actually where, you know, it's not like I want to talk about these things to everybody I know. There are people that I'm good friends with who I disagree with, and we just don't talk about these things. But I stopped hanging out with people a long time ago, in the last few years where like I feel that level of dissonance like I have to censor myself not just to be decent and get along but I think that's an important distinction here like if you feel that you have to censor yourself because you care about this person and it's not worth fighting over bullshit I don't think there's anything wrong with that form of, I, I, don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with that form of self-censorship to me that's no different than like listening to music in the car with a friend and not playing music that you know they hate and them not doing that to you. It's a two-way street where like they're not going to bring up a bunch of crap that'll piss you off and you're not going to bring up a bunch of crap that'll piss them off. That to me is like being, being able to be friends with somebody but not bringing up contentious issues. And censoring yourself in that situation isn't self-censorship in a 
bad way. It's self-censorship in the same way that you wouldn't tell your girlfriend she looks fat, even if she does. She does. It's the same thing. It's just being polite. But I've made it a point to not spend time or even really talk to people where you feel the need to self-censor because you will be condemned. And where it's not a two-way street. Where they don't respect the fact that you might have different beliefs because they think they're so right. And they've surrounded themselves by people who agree with them. And they think that they are so right that they don't have to self-censor even if it bothers you. But they expect you to self-censor because if you don't, you will condemn yourself. Or rather, they will condemn you for what you said, even if it's mild. And so I don't talk to people like that anymore. I don't spend time with people like that anymore. And those people, they are posers. They're not pure. Even if they truly believe in what they're into, I know how those friend groups work. And there's always a bunch of people who are just too afraid to speak up. It's like somebody who becomes part of like a hip social group and realizes at some point like, oh, I don't actually like that band. I don't actually like that band. But they're afraid to admit it because to not like that band is to not be cool. And these people who like that band or are pretending to like that band will condemn them not to. I know that sounds silly and petty, but this stuff is silly and petty. And the people who do that aren't pure. Like, I used to have strong opinions about, you know, interests and things. I still do. I have aesthetic taste. I have taste in things. And to have taste in things is to not have taste in other things. And sometimes certain things really grate you. But it's not a coincidence that teenagers who are posing themselves are also the people who will most vocally condemn another poser. Like I use the example of, oh, you got into that band today? I got into them yesterday, you freaking poser. Quit biting my heels. Oh, you, you don't really like them. You don't really like them. Well, the person who's doing that, the reason why they're on the offense in that situation is because they know deep down that they're not pure either. And so that's just playing out politically. Like the people who are most likely to vocally condemn someone, they know they're not pure. Wait, you're telling me that... You're telling me that you don't... Uh, wait, did you just say that you... <laughs> don't believe in gender fluidity? I've believed in gender fluidity since yesterday. You're a bigot. You're not morally pure. That's the level these people are operating on. You know, I use the example of like, there's a British feminist activist who's gotten under fire in recent years for speaking up about some of the gender stuff. She's, you know, what you'd call a more traditional feminist. 
and I saw her on a show and, and she was being interviewed. I, I don't know this guy, he must be famous, but he, he's some, it might, be, it might've been the BBC or something, but he was some middle-aged, not even middle-aged, like gray haired, like 60 year old man. And he was asking her about her opinions on some of this gender stuff that's going on. And the feminist stated like she believes in biological men and women and that influences how she feels about restrooms. And the old man, obviously progressive and liberal, he was like, he, he was in disbelief. He's like, I just can't believe that you believe that. And it's like, you believed that three years ago, dude. You can't believe that she believes that men and women form the basis of our biological reality. You're acting stunned. And I know you have a show to do, but it's like, you're shocked by something that you believed three years ago. Like you jumped on that wagon, you know, three years ago. Everybody did. <laughs> and so that's the funny thing about all this. It's not that much different than someone who got into a band yesterday accusing someone who just got into that band today or isn't even into that band of being false. When it's like, do you realize like how recent this was for you too? But it is the people who don't truly believe it. Cause that's what you realize like, you know, when I got more secure in myself, I realized like, what's the point in condemning people or condemning bands? I mean, I had this experience with football where when the Seahawks were really popular, everybody in, t everybody in Western Washington is wearing Seahawks jerseys. You go to the store, you go to the bar, it's just all Seahawks talk. And guess what? A bunch of people go, oh my God. I need, to, I need to hit pause for a second on that, oh my God. All right, we're back. Oh my God, continuing on. You know, when the Seahawks were doing really well in the early 2010s, when they won the Super Bowl, when they were just so fun to watch, your team is winning all the time and they have these big personalities who are charismatic and it's so fun. It's so fun to watch your team be good. And you know what? It's fun for people who don't care as much about football during that situation. Like people who don't have the spiritual attachment to football to weather the storm of bad seasons and losing games and when your quarterback sucks. Those people who aren't going to give a shit about the Seahawks when your team sucks, they see the team doing well and they know a bunch of people who are excited and they get excited. Are they Fairweather fans? Yes. Does it matter? Does it matter that they're Fairweather fans? Not at all. And so when the Seahawks were doing well, like everybody, including me, was talking about them nonstop. Because even though I'm a lot, you know, I've been going to Seahawk games since I was a baby. My dad had season tickets. I'm not posturing when I say that I'm a true fan. But I talk about them more when they're doing well. I'm more excited when they're doing well. Even though I'm willing to slog through terrible years, terrible teams, I, I get more excited when they're doing well too. Funny how that works. Some people are, I'm not a Fairweather fan though, but there are people who are, where like they're only going to watch the game when that's what everybody's doing and it's exciting. 
And during those years, around like 2013, 2014, every single person in Western Washington could have told you like who the backup center was. They could have told you who the backup long snapper was. I remember like I was hanging out with this group of people and this guy was talking about how his brother is obsessed with the Seahawks and he made the joke. He's like, he could tell you what the assistant coach's wife's name is. And I was like, it's funny because it's, it's so true. And that's what happens when your team is doing well, like you obsess over them. And so people who otherwise wouldn't really give a shit are, are drawn to that. They're drawn to that energy. They're drawn to the fact that it's pleasurable. It's pleasurable to watch a good team. But what was funny is during that time, even though it was this exciting time, there were tons of people, and I knew them and liked them, but there were tons of people who were constantly bitching about Fairweather fans. Like, oh, are you still going to be here in five years when they suck? Oh, God, there's all these Fairweather fans wearing Seahawk jerseys. What do you care? What do you even care? You know, why does it even matter to you? And I say that having been that person throughout my life. Like, I've been that guy who's bitching about Fairweather fans. I've been that guy who's been looking at other people and, and thinking like, yeah, they, they don't pass the purity test. Oh yeah, they're a poser. Even if I don't use those words, it's the same thought. But when the Seahawks were doing really well, I made a decision because I could feel that impulse. I could feel the impulse to condemn Fairweather fans. Oh, where were you last season? Oh, I'm in this packed bar where everybody's wearing all blue. Everybody has new Seahawks gear. Where were you last year? Instead of doing that, I remember going, you know what? I'm going to enjoy this. I'm going to enjoy that I can go anywhere in my town and have a conversation with somebody about the frickin' Seahawks. Because they're excited. They're passionate. And even though it's a temporary passion, it's not a spiritual catharsis for them like it is for people who grew up when the Seahawks went 2-14 and 14 and Stan Gelbaugh was the quarterback. It's not spiritually cathartic in the same way, but it's still cathartic. And their excitement makes me more excited. Because I can go to the grocery store and talk to the freaking like 20-year-old girl behind the counter about the Seahawks. It's a conversation point at parties. And as someone who doesn't normally have that experience with people, like just the way that I'm wired, I'm not normally into things that I can talk to anybody about. So I'm just stuck, oh, I'll make small talk or talk about things I don't give a shit about. It's just how I am. So the fact that like during those years, from like 2013 to 2015 or 16, the fact that I could talk to any fucking stranger in any situation about the Seahawks was cool to me. As a true fan, I was not threatened. I was not put off by the fact that people are Fairweather fans. And what's funny about that is some of those people who were bitching about Fairweather fans 
I don't think they're paying close attention to the Seahawks right now. I don't think they're paying that much attention. I think what they were condemning, I mean, this is Psych 101, but I think what they were condemning was the exact thing they were feeling. Like, they knew that their excitement was fair-weathered. And so when they saw that in other people, they were like, fuck these people. They were kind of trying to declare their own purity. And that's what people do. I mean, that's kind of the theme here, is that people try to reinforce their own purity by pointing out the impurity in others. It's literally a version of like, don't look at my flaws, look over there at his. Like, they're worried that somebody is going to come down on them for being a Fairweather Seahawks fan. So what they do is they bitch about other people being Fairweather Seahawks fans. They won't think that I'm a Fairweather fan if I complain about other Fairweather fans. Meanwhile, where are they now? Where are they right now? Some of them are fans, but, you know, it's just funny how that works. And that's going to be true of all this political shit, too, because things will change. These people who learned about what it is to be genderqueer, people who all of a sudden decided to pitch slogans like defund the police people who never thought of that in their lives because that's what i noticed that was the funny thing about summer 2020 is the number of like pretty middle of the road liberals i knew who suddenly started saying defund the police like they always believed it and they're they're shocked that you don't agree with that they're shocked They're like that guy interviewing the feminist. And she says, like, I believe there are two biological sexes, genders, whatever the fuck. And he's like, I'm just astounded that you believe that. Are you? Are you astounded that she believes something you believed yesterday? And that's a common side of this. A common side of this is that someone acts shocked or astounded when someone is like they were a short time ago. And they'll condemn that person. But it's funny. You know, it's it's very funny because we do this. And things will change. And people will either act like they didn't say the things they had said. They'll act like They didn't believe the things they believed and they'll take on something else and they'll act shocked when somebody doesn't believe in that or doesn't think that way. It's why when I quit drinking, I made it a point to not condemn alcohol, to not condemn drinkers. Like if you quit drinking and you act like people who drink all the time are... uh, morally impure you're doing that because you want to separate yourself from it you're doing that because you want to like declare your new identity and i know former drinkers who've done this and it bothers me a lot of the people i know who have joined aa 
which isn't very many people. It's not very many people, but still, like I've noticed that trend where like, oh, wall yourself off. I understand the survival side of that. I don't want to go into a whole drinking thing here, but I understand the survival side of that. Oh, hey, be around people who are sober and they reinforce that. But you see where it becomes a new in-group, where it becomes a new identity. And there was a friend that I used to drink with all the time and we had nothing but fun. You know, yeah, not maybe not nothing but fun. Like sometimes we both had dark nights and things. But this person, when they quit drinking, like we had a lot of fun. And I know this person had a lot of fun. But when they, when they quit drinking, she said, uh, when she quit drinking, I noticed like any time like she would talk about drinking, which was a lot, she would still, because, she, because her new identity was based around not drinking. And I love this person. Like I, I have nothing but respect for this person, but I, it's just a pitfall that I see. And if somebody sees a pitfall in me, I want them to talk about it on their podcast too. I want somebody to have a parable about me. But this person, you know, it, it, because she quit drinking before I did, it educated me as to how I wanted to go about it. See, that's why it's a parable. Like, I saw the way that she treated not drinking, which she was successful at and deserves nothing but respect for. But there was an element, and I don't think that she was judgmental. I, I don't think she was judgmental of drinkers. But I noticed that like when the subject of drinking came up and she would bring it up a lot because her identity was based around not doing that. And when your identity is based around not doing something, you still end up talking about that thing all the time. That's one of the reasons why I try not to bring up the drinking thing and I do, but I try not to. But it's like when she would talk about drinking, like the drinking days, like she painted it as if it was all horrible and bad. Like it was all just the worst thing in the world. And, and, you know, and she wasn't even a big drinker. Like, she got a DUI and, and then quit drinking, which makes total sense. Makes total sense why that would make you quit drinking. But she wasn't, you know, she, she drank probably more than the average person, but it wasn't like, uh, and it's, it's and it, I'm not in a position to judge what should prompt somebody to quit drinking. I think she made the right decision. But I just noticed that it was like there was this tone where it's like, Drinking is all bad. And if you talk about somebody who's still drinking, you talk about them almost like they're a, a fallen soul. Like, oh, still drinking. And I saw her view morph where, like, like I said, I didn't even think she had a very significant drinking problem. She made a bad decision and got, you know, in trouble. And I'm, I think she made the right decision. But uh, she uh, she started to say things that were insane, though. Like, she started to say, like, I don't even know if I'd be alive today if I hadn't quit drinking. And I was like, what? Like, like she started to take on what other people were saying. Because you could see there's, like, this purity test that exists in AA. And even though I've never been to AA, I have friends who have been there and quit AA. And they've told me kind of what takes place there. And, you know, my grandpa was in AA for 44 years. Like, he, he did well with it. And he was very secretive about it. He didn't broadcast it. My grandpa's identity wasn't based around it. He was like a mafia member. Where, like, he firmly believed, like, you don't talk about AA. You go for a purpose, and that's it. He was like a mafioso about AA. 
Because that's what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be a secret society. But uh, this friend of mine like started going there, and, and she would hear stories about other people's drinking, who probably were going to die. And then I noticed that she started to talk like them. Like, she started to talk like... She started to say things like, I don't even know if I'd be alive today. And I was like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I understand that drinking can escalate. I understand that it was a good decision to quit. You didn't have such a severe drinking problem that you were going to die. But because she was surrounded by people and that was... Because that's the thing, that's what I was going to get at, is like, in AA, like, that person almost becomes of higher status. Like, the person in AA who says, you know, I was drinking three-fifths a day, and if I hadn't quit the day I did, I would have been homeless and then dead in a week. And in a weird way, that person becomes high status. Like, they sacrificed more. They made a more dramatic change. And then somebody who doesn't have that story sits there and they hear that. And they're like, oh, wow. I would drink on Friday and Saturday night with my friends. And then I had enough of it. But in order to belong here... I've got to start talking like that. I've got to start saying, I wouldn't even be alive today if I didn't stop my Friday night bar hopping. And uh, I'm not judging that person. I'm just saying I noticed it. And I have noticed that people who quit doing something are quick to condemn another person. They're quick to di try to distance themselves from that thing. Like, I've seen this with the new Christians. These kind of counterculture Christians that I comment on here. And I notice that they talk that way. Like, they'll condemn anybody who isn't a new Christian. And I'm like, you've become exactly what you hated. The reason why you were an atheist when you were 20 years old was because you hated people who talked the way that you're talking. And you found God through some counterculture bullshit, probably because of a podcast you listened to. But you're talking the same way the most obnoxious church ladies were talking 40 years ago. The people who made you be an atheist back then. But that's the thing, is that those are the people, though, who become that way. It's the guy who was like a 4chan atheist in 2005. He's the guy who's going to become a Christian and start condemning non-Christians. And expecting this purity, people to pass this purity test. I can tell you that my own belief in God is so, uh, <laughs> I haven't thought about God enough lately, but my own belief in God is it's, it's so magnificent. I don't need to sacrifice other people to, to believe in that, you know? I don't need other people to, um, 
I don't need to, to walk on the backs of impure people to feel the magnificence of, of the God that I believe in. I'm human, I'm fallen, so I talk shit. I'm doing it right now. I'm talking shit. See, I'm, I mean, it, it, it's like Alan Watts talked about where you, you can never really escape that. Like, what I'm doing right now is I'm like, can you believe these people condemn other people? And here I am condemning them. But I don't think I'm condemning them, to give myself some credit. I don't think I'm condemning these people. I'm just saying I've learned from that. Because I feel that tendency in myself to do that. I can feel that tendency. Like, I made it a point when I quit drinking to go out to bars with friends who I used to drink with right away. I hit the ground running. I made a decision where I said, and I wouldn't recommend this to anybody. I wouldn't endorse this. This is what I needed to do. But I made it a point right away to go into situations that I otherwise would have gotten blackout drunk in and not drink. Because I wanted to face, I wanted to stare the devil in the eye right away. Two weeks after I quit drinking, the first social outing I went to, my friend asked me to be her plus one at her Christmas work party. And she worked at a fancy bar. And they closed down the bar and let everybody at the party drink freely. For free. This guy's swearing. That guy's talk. The guy said, it. "Guy telling me I'll fucking kill you." Did you hear that? He's on something. Fortunately, he went the opposite direction. I don't know if you could hear that, but yeah, guy. He's pulling out of a parking lot. I'm like a block, two blocks away from my house. He's pulling out of a parking lot. It's like a closed-down pharmacy, so nobody has any business being there. And he had his window rolled down. And he was gesturing at me from about, I don't know, probably a hundred yards away, maybe maybe less. And I will fucking kill you, I will fucking kill you. I will fucking kill you. So I just turned right around. I got nothing to prove to that guy. Um, and then he went the opposite direction, so he made the right decision. Good for him. It's funny, because I'm in really dark clothing. I'm surprised he could even see me. Maybe he was talking to a ghost. Anyway, at least one person told me they were going to kill me tonight. Doesn't happen every day. But uh, anyway, uh, where was I? It'll, it'll take you off topic. But, uh, you know, Alan Watts talking about, like, you know, how it's, it's like when you think you're leveling up, you have this tendency to condemn other people who were on the level you were on before. Like you were a hardcore atheist five years ago and you found God. And now you're like, can you believe people are atheists? Well, you better believe it because you were one a few years ago. You must understand them. It's funny that instead of saying, oh, I understand why people are that way or think that way and respect it because I know what it is to be that, 
Not that you always have to respect it, but you know you understand it. There's no need to condemn it. Because that doesn't make you more of what you want to be right now. But that's what people are trying to do. They think by condemning what they were before, they're going to become more of what they want to be right now. But it doesn't help. And I think it actually hurts. Uh, but yeah, this story I was launching into was just that I got, you know, I decided to stare the devil in the eye when I quit drinking. And, you know, I went to a, a co-worker, I was a co-worker's, or, or I was my friend's plus one at her work party. And it was like all this free booze at a bar that had been shut down just for this Christmas party. People were doing shots, everything I loved. And I didn't even tell my friend I had quit drinking because I, I wanted to be sure that that's what I was going to do before I announced it. I didn't want to get, I didn't want to do what they've, it's like studies have shown. Like when social media got big, they found that when people would announce that they were like going to lose weight or quit a negative behavior before they actually did it and the response was favorable, like someone says, I'm going to, for New Year's Eve, I've made a decision to lose 30 pounds. Like when someone announced that before they actually did it, and a, and a bunch of their friends on social media were like, oh, you go, good job. That's such a great decision. They're congratulating them for nothing. They're congratulating them for saying something. But the person who posted that feels like they accomplished something. And they experience oxytocin or whatever it is, oxycontin. They feel endor an endorphin rush as if they did accomplish something because they're getting a bunch of people telling them, you go, you got this, you got this. Good job. Meanwhile, it's a congratulation unearned because they haven't done anything. And that's actually a detriment because they already feel like they accomplished something. These studies showed that they don't even actually do it. They go, oh, that was easy. I already did it. Their, their mind tells them, you already did it because a bunch of people patted you on the back. Whereas, like, if you've ever gotten in shape, if you've ever dropped a bunch of weight, which I have, you know, especially when I, when I was, like, 20 and I lost a bunch of weight. I was a fat boy my whole life. And then around the time, a little bit before I turned 21 or around the time I, th I turned 21, I don't know when it all started, I didn't make some announcement. I didn't tell people I was going to finally get in shape. But I, I just started doing it. I, I started eating less, and I started... Uh, I, didn't, I didn't eat better. I still ate shitty food, but I ate less of it. And I would just walk for longer. I would get just a little bit more exercise. I didn't start going to the gym. I didn't do anything crazy. I was young enough where, you know, my body responded quickly... But I dropped a huge amount of weight. Probably, I don't know. I don't know how much I lost. I didn't. That's the thing too is I didn't weigh myself. I don't believe in that. I don't believe in getting scientific about weight loss. I think my philosophy on that is you just do the things that are good for you. And rather than measuring my weight every day, I'm going to know. I'm going to know at some point that something's happened here, right? And rather than announcing it before you do it, one of the best feelings in the world is other people noticing it without you saying anything. 
when you haven't seen somebody in a while and they say to you, did you lose a bunch of weight? Not even that you're fishing for that, but it's like they confirm that's the new reality you're living in. I mean, I, I remember that exact scenario happening to me. I ran into this guy that I knew in town, and he said, those, he said exactly that. He was like, you look different. Like, did you lose a bunch of weight? And I said, yeah. And he said, how'd you do it? He was, like, he was kind of a chubby guy, not fat, but he, he was looking for tips or something, and I just shrugged because that's kind of how it felt. But uh, just, uh, you know, it wasn't like there was any real formula to it. You just do it. But anyway, other people noticing it. And so, like, quitting drinking, that was kind of my philosophy too, where it was like, I'm not going to announce this before I do it. Because I don't want to announce that I'm quitting drinking and then decide or or just not have the willpower to actually do it. And so when I went to this Christmas party, I hadn't announced to my friend, which, you know, maybe I kind of, you know, maybe it was kind of awkward for her. Oh, shit, like, I invited you to my wild plus one part or my wild, my plus one to my wild work party. And I didn't know you quit drinking, but it was really good for me because I got to be exposed right away to the most temptation possible. And then I made it a point to do that for a while afterward, where like the same people that I would meet up with for drinks, we would meet up. We did it a few times. Then I realized I didn't even really want to do it. Once I realized that it simply wasn't as fun, because I didn't want to take that attitude of hanging out at bars all night is just as fun, sober. It's not. It's not horrible. You can still enjoy spending time with somebody. But I also wanted my friends at that time who I used to drink with to know that, like, I quit doing this, but I don't feel differently about you and what you do. I know that you're going to hang out here all night drinking. And I used to be right there with you until at closing time. But I wanted to spend time with them in that situation to be like, this isn't kryptonite to me. But I did find it wasn't as fun. Of course it's not. Because you have to be honest with yourself and say, oh yeah, you know what? Turns out hanging out at a bar for hours, you realize how much time that is when you're sober. Like, I can't believe I used to do this half the week, all weekend. I mean, time flies by when you're drinking. But when you're sober sitting there and you're like, I can't believe that I used to just sit here for four hours, five hours, sometimes longer. Crazy. Hang out at a bar for four hours, go to a restaurant, have a bite to eat, come back to the bar for another four hours. The idea of doing that's like a job. <laughs> I would have died if I'd done that now. But uh, I don't mean to make it out more than it was, but because everybody's done that. But it's just, you know, you don't want to condemn the thing that you're distancing yourself from because if you're truly distanced from it, you just know it. And I learned that lesson early in life when my dad got arrested. My dad had been growing weed since the 70s, I think it was. My dad had always had a couple plants for himself. I didn't even know about it until I was older, you know. My parents got divorced and stuff, and I didn't even know my dad had these plants. But he'd been growing weed forever. He, he said that he had a strain of weed, because we've talked a lot about it since then since I came of age, and he told me that he used to grow a strain of weed called 911. 
<laughs> and uh, he said it used to just take you out. But he got arrested in the mid-90s because he lived up on this island that was you know, a very small community, a lot of drinkers, a lot of like outdoorsy fishermen-type people. It's probably different now. But uh, my dad had a weed plant. And there was one day where he just put it outside for some reason, maybe to get some sun, just maybe he was cleaning, I don't know. But he put his weed plant out on the deck along the side of the house, which was very private. Like, I don't even think the neighbor would be able to see it. But there was a guy doing some work on the neighbor's house. I think he was painting or something, or like a roof cleaner. And he saw the weed plant and he called 911, funny enough. And my dad got arrested for having a weed plant. He didn't serve any jail time. I mean, I think he, he had to go to jail and stuff, but he ended up getting uh, sentenced to community service. And they were very apologetic. Like his uh, probation officer or whatever was very apologetic, I found out. Because he was like, you know, you, you're a businessman. Like you run your own small business and you're successful and you're, you know, you're doing everything you're supposed to do. You know, I'm sorry we have to do this to you. So it's like they treated him really well, even though he was growing weed. And that just shows you how absurd it is that, like, flash forward to 2020, and one of the only places that was open during lockdown was weed stores. Like, something my dad got arrested for at his own house is, is considered an essential business during a, a global crisis. Shows you the absurdity we live under. But anyway, like the point of the story is the guy who snitched on my dad, the guy who was doing work on the neighbor's house and saw the plant, he found out through the neighbor that that guy had been a huge pothead previously who became born again. Like he knew the guy. So the guy who called the cops on my dad and got him arrested, put him through the ringer, that guy had been a big stoner who who became a born-again Christian and decided that what he needed to do was call the police on my freaking dad who minds his own business. And my dad got a, a freaking handcuffed. But it's, it's a good example of that. Like where that guy probably felt, you know, I'm reading into his thinking, but that snitch, he probably, in his mind, he probably felt that in order to live up to his new identity, he had to condemn my dad that's what he did he couldn't just see the marijuana plant and say oh hey that guy next door has a marijuana plant that's not good i'm sure glad that i don't i'm, I'm sure glad that's not me anymore instead he had to condemn him who knows what would have happened i mean my dad got off easy he could have had to serve i mean my my life would be much different if my dad got sentenced to a prison term for a plant. There are some states or periods of time where that would have happened. My life would be substantially different. Maybe not, but it would have caused me serious psychological distress if my dad served even a couple months in prison for a marijuana plant, which is would have been a, a very distinct possibility in that situation. To be the only kid I know whose dad's in jail 
for something that is just completely acceptable now. So that's fucked up. But anyway, uh, I remember being told that story about how the guy who snitched on my dad had been a, a former pot smoker himself who had renounced his former life. But when people renounce their former life, they act astounded. Like the BBC guy saying to that woman, I'm astounded that you believe what I believed yesterday. Like that guy who's the snitch, he better than anybody should have known that what my dad was doing was harmless. If that guy was a former pothead, yeah, it may have caused his life some issues. Maybe it wasn't good for that guy to smoke a bunch of pot, but he would know better than anybody that what my dad was doing was harmless. And, but, you know, he, he was shocked and astounded. But anyway, that's kind of the theme here. That's, and that's what happens when there's this sort of, when new ideas are being introduced to somebody over and over. Like when someone's adopting a new set of ideas over and over again. They do that. Because they think, in order to accept this new idea, I have to condemn the old one that it displaces. And that is kind of what a hipster is. It's somebody who takes something on, takes on a new identity very easily. They're trying to emulate whatever they think that identity is. And they're also the one who condemns the thing that they were before. It's kind of a progressive liberal mindset as well. Not that there's necessarily virtue to doubling down on what you've always been and believed, but that is a trait of conservatism. Where it's like, this is what I've always done. This is what my daddy always did. This is what my grandpa did. And that makes it right. No, not always. Whereas, you know, the progressive tendency is, here's a new idea that is more current, and I better adopt it. Otherwise, you know, otherwise I'm a bad person. Otherwise I'm not cool. So hipsters are progressive. They're liberal. But they don't actually innovate. That's the interesting thing about that way of thinking, is they're not innovators. They adopt something new after somebody else has already shown it to them. But they're never the ones, rarely are they the ones who actually create something new. They're not the people who create ideas, they're the ones who adopt them. And that's what you see from progressives and liberals often as well. They're not the ones who create new ideas, they're the ones who adopt them. And I'm talking about just the average person, not everybody who thinks that way. Not everybody who has certain um, core beliefs. I'm talking about the person who 
takes on that identity, who's trying to emulate that. Obviously, there are people who have progressive beliefs who are very innovative and interesting and unique. I'm talking about the person who's emulating that. But that tendency is there, and that tendency plays out in all areas of our lives. And I think there's kind of this, this constant battle in people as individuals. On you know, on one hand, you want to stay true to something that has always worked for you, but you shouldn't make the mistake that that's more morally virtuous, just because it's always been there, and it's in theory always worked. Because that's one of the pitfalls of conservatism, not just politically, but in every aspect that it plays out. Tradition. The way things have always been. You shouldn't pretend that that's necessarily morally virtuous to be that way. To say, hey, I'm just going to do the, what people have always done and that's it. Because maybe times have changed. Maybe things change. Maybe you were wrong. But on the other hand, you shouldn't be too quick to adopt something new just because it's new. Because just because something is different than the way it's always been doesn't mean that it's better or morally virtuous. Even if you think what came before is bad. And that's what a hipster is to me. It's somebody who is quick to adopt new ideas to then act like they've always believed in those ideas and to condemn people who are either the way they used to be or aren't like them. And so as that hipster identity has kind of disappeared, nobody talks about it, nobody thinks about it, it's just kind of blended into everything else, that kind of thinking isn't gone. What made that person what they were at a certain point of time isn't gone, and you can actually see it everywhere. Children can run free.